Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. I see a, a moral core or moral compass developing over many years with the concerted attention of adults and a lot of other people. I don't think it's something that naturally emerges. I think it's something that adults have to be very intentional about cultivating. The role of parents in encouraging and setting an example for the moral development of children. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Richard Weisbord spends a lot of time pondering how to bring out the best in young people and how to stimulate their emotional and moral development. He's the founder of an inner city school in Boston, a faculty member at Harvard's School of Education and School of Government, a family counselor and a father. And he sees the tough road many youths are on. I worry about kids who don't have empathy. I worry about kids who become narcissistic. And I'm not talking about most kids, but I'm talking about a large number of kids, you know, enough kids to be really concerned about. And, you know, I was very aware of this when my kids were growing up, um, that I was part of this culture of parenting, and that, you know, there are many subtle ways in which I think I privileged my kids' happiness and self-esteem over their morality. Um, you know, I didn't require them to return phone calls from friends. I let them write off kids they found annoying. I didn't make them reach out to a friendless kid on the playground. You know, I think in all these ways, in all these subtle day-to-day ways, we can prioritize our kids' happiness over morality. And um, we end up, you know, with kids who are less moral, but I think ironically we also end up with kids who are less happy, that all this attention to our kids' needs isn't making them happier either. Weisbord is author of The Parents We Mean to Be, which explores how well-intentioned adults sometimes inadvertently undercut the healthy development of children. In particular, he critiques the modern movement to bolster a child's self-esteem, which, says Weisbord, can elevate a young person's happiness over traits that may actually matter more. I think that we just basically have it backward. I think we have this idea that if you have self-esteem, you're going to be more caring and you're going to have better relationships and you're going to be more productive at work. But I think in reality, the reverse is more likely to be true. That if you help kids become caring and tuned into other people, they're going to have better relationships. They're going to be better friends. They're going to be better parents. They're going to be better grandparents. And those good relationships are the most durable, powerful source of, of real self-esteem that we have. 
Um, if you help kids to be self-reflective, if you help them to be competent, if you help them to be diligent, if you help them to deal with frustration, they're going to be productive at work. Um, they're going to get real outcomes, and that's going to build self-esteem. So it's not that self-esteem is a cause of morality or that self-esteem is a cause of academic achievement. It's that academic achievement, real academic achievement, and real morality and real caring can be a really important and durable cause of self-esteem. It may be that the popular goal of enhancing a child's self-esteem is not very well defined. The social conditions in which too many children grow up can distort a young person's view of what a healthy life might look like. And Weisbord believes we do need to find ways that provide better support for kids who turn to self-destructive behavior. But the answer, he says, is not to build confidence in a way that can lead children to become self-centered. Where I sort of land on this is, is that the goal of our child raising should be maturity. And if you think about maturity as the ability to manage destructive feelings, as the ability to be self-reflective, as the ability to take feedback and actually change as a result of that feedback, is the ability to take other people's perspectives and appreciate other perspectives and coordinate your perspective with other people, is the capacity to take a third-person perspective, to be able to step outside of a relationship and to really understand what's going on inside it. You know, those kinds of abilities to take a kind of helicopter view of what's going on in your relationships and to understand them and understand them when they go wrong, too, and how to set them right. I think those are the capacities, actually, that are really strong basis for long-term happiness and self-esteem. And I think those are the capacities that are also a strong basis for caring and responsibility and, and virtue and morality. How much do you think factors like peer pressure and some of the coarser side of our crass popular culture uh, influence the emotional and the moral development of young people? Well, I'm, you know, I'm very concerned about it. I think um, peer culture and media culture, certainly media culture, can have all kinds of negative influences on kids. But I will say this. I do think there's also a tendency for adults to blame peer culture and to blame the media. And then again, I'm not saying there's not reason to be concerned and to let themselves off the hook. And peer groups can be can do significant damage to kids. I mean, peer groups can be destructive. I don't think they're the primary root of our kids' moral problems today. What do you think are? Parents. I think it's, and parents in this sense, I think it's parents who are themselves not modeling moral behavior, um, who themselves are immature in some way, and parents who are, and this is related, Parents who, as we were talking about earlier, are so focused on their kids' happiness and self-esteem and achievements um, and not really focused on their kids' character in the same way. And you think that just sort of creates a, an atmosphere of narcissism? I think it creates kids who become very concerned with their happiness and achievement and not really concerned, um, as concerned, with caring for others. And I don't want to cartoon kids or parents out there. There are a lot of great parents out there. There are a lot of great kids out there, too. Um, but this is the trend that I am worried about. A recent survey shows that the majority of American adults believe a deficiency in children's fundamental moral values, such as honesty and respect for others, constitutes a serious national problem. And yet, says Harvard psychologist Rick Weisbord, 
even young children tend to have a basic understanding of right and wrong. I started thinking about this several years ago when I was talking to my daughter, who was then around seven years old, and a few of her friends. And I gave them a quiz or a test that's in a popular character education program. And the, and the, and the question in this character education program is, um, should you be honest with your teacher if you forget your homework? And one of my daughter's friends, who was then seven years old, said to me, do you want me to tell you what I would actually do, or do you want me to tell you what you'd like to hear? A smart question. A smart question. And, you know, I started looking at the research, and it becomes clear that, you know, by the time kids are five years old, they know that stealing is wrong. And by the time they're six or seven, they basically know the values. You know, they know value, that values like caring and responsibility are important. Honesty is important. The much deeper challenge isn't this moral literacy. It's, it's a moral identity. It's how do you make these values a part of the self? How do you make these values a deep part of a child's identity? How do you really have children make an internal commitment to these values? Does that mean to take them to heart? To very much take them to heart and to have them be a reflex. You know, for the, the research on the Dutch who rescued the Jews in World War II, you know, the Dutch don't talk about it as a choice. They talk about it as something they did reflexively. It was sort of naturally. It was who they were. It was part of their heart, in a sense. And I think that needs to be our goal. That needs to be our challenge. Let's talk about what people call the moral compass, a person's own indicator of, of their conscience, of what's appropriate or inappropriate behavior. Do you think every child has a moral compass? I, you know, I think the great majority of kids have some kind of moral compass. Um, I think the great majority of adults have some kind of moral compass. But part of what makes the, the question complicated is that morality, I don't think, is one thing. I think it's, you know, many different things. And people can be strong in one aspect of morality and not strong in other aspects of morality. So, you know, one thing I think is having this moral identity that I was just talking about, you know, having a strong commitment to values. Another aspect of, of morality is being able to control destructive feelings. And when you think about times when you've transgressed or when any of us have transgressed, it's often not because we didn't know right from wrong. It's because we were dealing with an emotion we couldn't control. You know, it's because we were dealing with anger or shame or envy or lust or, or, or guilt or, you know, or greed. You know, one of the seven deadly sins, you know, it's, it's dealing with these emotions. And so, so you're saying in spite of the indication of the moral compass, we were impelled for whatever reason to kind of transgress that. Yes, that is what I'm saying. And, you know, you, you can think of people, I give an example in the, in the book of, of somebody on the basketball court. You know, men's basketball is sort of a laboratory for understanding moral regression. Um, <laughs> You know, it's, you know, because I, there are people on the basketball court who have great integrity, you know, who, you know, in other spheres of their life, and generally they have great integrity, but they get angry or they get frustrated or, you know, they feel disrespected and they act like four-year-olds. And, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, so I think the challenge for us is not simply in knowing the values or internalizing the values, it is in helping kids manage these destructive feelings. You know, I also think morality is about moral reasoning. You know, it's about being able to sort through moral dilemmas. When we ask kids about their moral conflicts, if, you know, when you ask adults about moral conflicts, it's often situations where two values collide. 
So, example. Uh, um, one of the most common dilemmas we heard from kids was something like, a friend of mine stole a calculator from another kid in the class, and the teacher asked me who stole the calculator. Should I be loyal to my friend, or should I be honest with the teacher? And, you know, there are a lot of these honesty-loyalty binds. Sometimes they're, they're conflicts within the same value, that you feel loyal to one group of friends and loyal to another group of friends, and there's a conflict between those two groups of friends. Sometimes there's a, va there's a conflict between caring and loyalty. There's a new kid in your neighborhood, and you want to invite this new kid to, the ba to a birthday party because she doesn't know anybody, but a few of your friends don't like this new kid. And so, you know, should you be responsible for this new kid or should you be loyal to your friends? I mean, these kind of conflicts come up all the time. And, you know, that's really when people talk about moral dilemmas, that's primarily what they're talking about. And again, just knowing the values doesn't really help you in these situations. What you need to be able to do is to reason through how to make the right decision when there are two values in conflict or when there's the same value like loyalty in conflict. Talking with Richard Weisbord, a child and family psychologist on the faculty of Harvard's Graduate School of Education and Kennedy School of Government. For more information on this segment, Nurturing Moral Development of Children, please visit humanmedia.org. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. One, I think, important core aspect of a moral compass is empathy or appreciation. You know, it's really um, not just knowing other people's perspectives, but valuing other people's perspectives and experiencing what other people experience and experiencing people's experience who are different from you in race, culture, class, gender, and many other characteristics. I think that's a key aspect of a moral, of a moral compass. Um, so, you know, sort of empathy, appreciation, um, is one important aspect of a moral compass. But there are people who have empathy and appreciation who are not always honest and who don't always act with integrity. Um, and sometimes they become dishonest because of the empathy, be be because they are so sensitive to well, the feelings good, of others, they don't want to hurt the other person. I think that's, a good, that's an important point. So I think that's right. And so that's why I am trying to complicate the, the view of, the, of a moral compass in a sense, because um, I don't think it's one thing. I think people on one aspect of a moral compass can be very strong, and other aspects of a moral compass may be less strong. They're Me meaning they're more dimly aware of right and wrong in certain areas? Well, I think there's some people who really know right from wrong and have a great capacity for moral reasoning, let's say, um, but have trouble doing what's right um, for a variety of reasons, um, because they're afraid of conflict, let's say, or because they're overwhelmed with shame or, or anger. Um, I think there's some people, vice versa, who in most situations really can act with integrity, but there are some situations where they have a real trouble figuring out what right and wrong is. What you know, They have trouble reasoning through moral dilemmas. Um, you know, there's some people with very strong principles. I'm sure we can all think of people like this in our own life. Very strong principles, high integrity, but they seem kind of obtuse or unempathic in their intimate relationships. 
So again, you know, they're in one sense, they have a strong moral compass and in another arena, in another sense, they don't have a strong moral compass. So Richard Weisbord distinguishes between an impulse to do what you may feel is the right thing in a given situation and the ability to act on that impulse skillfully. In guiding the moral development of children, he says, it starts with focusing on basic human interactions. I think parents do have to be very purposeful about this. You know, they have to insist that their kids are nice to the waiter or waitress, um, to the bus driver, to the custodian, to the, to the store clerk. They have to point out to their kids injustice. They have to insist that their kids reach out to the friendless kid on the playground. You know, I hear stories, you know, mom was just talking to me about being at a birthday party and, you know, seeing a kid, a birthday party of four-year-olds, and the four-year-old is putting his fingers in every slice of the pizza, and the mom is sitting there and doesn't say anything. <laughs> and, you know, it, again, it's in these day-to-day -day ways that we, you know, can either reinforce our kid's selfishness or send a very different message, which is you cannot do that. Um, you know, on the playground, I see little kids interrupting older kids in the middle of games and parents thinking it's cute. And, um, you know, again, this is a time to send a message. These older kids are playing a game and you can't, you know, you have to be aware of them. And it's that day-to-dayness that I think is the primary way in which we develop a moral compass or core in our kids, you know, when we are really attentive to those things day-to-day. -day. By the same token... You talk a lot about how children pay close attention to the details of how their parents handle interactions with other people. What kind of lessons do kids draw from their parents' behavior? Well, I think kids are always drawing lessons from us. I mean, you know, the kind of cliche is true. They're always watching us, and they're watching us in their teen years, too. I think there's a myth out there that teens become disinterested or uninfluenced by their parents, and it's just not true. I mean... Teens are influenced by their parents in all kinds of ways and can reproduce their parents' behaviors, positive and negative, in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I am saying that as parents, we have to be very mindful of what we're modeling all the time for our kids in our day-to-day -day interactions with people. Are we nice? Are we kind to the waitress or the store clerk or, you know, people who are working around our house or, you know, whoever? Um, are we show, you know, any sense of responsibility for our communities and our neighborhoods. I mean, one thing that came up in an, in an interview, which is re relevant to both kids and adults, is that um, this is actually an interview that one of my students did. We were, we were both talking to parents who were debating whether or not to let their daughter quit the soccer team. She was a junior in high school. And the mom said, let her quit. She's not having any fun anymore. And the dad said, but it's important for a college resume. She's a good soccer player. And neither of the parents raised the question, what is her obligation to the team? And I was talking to my wife recently and about my daughter, not, this was a, a year or two ago, um, who wanted to, to quit a dance group she was involved in, you know, again, a year or two ago. And, uh, I said, she's not having any fun, let her quit. And my wife basically said to me, excuse me, Mr. Moral Development, <laughs> you, know, you can't just let her quit the group. She has an obligation to the group. And, you know, as parents, I don't know that we are insisting that our kids' 
honor their obligations to their schools, to their teams, to their neighborhoods, their communities. And I don't know that we model or express any sense of obligation sometimes or commitment to our communities or neighborhoods or schools. And clearly many parents do do that. But I worry about the degree to which we don't do that. We don't care about other people's kids or express our care about in the sports field, in the schools, you know, a variety of settings that many parents, uh, and again, I don't want cartoon parents here, but that many parents are not expressing a, a sense of obligation. about when parents start to lose it under the everyday stresses of life? What, what do children learn from how parents recover from those stumbles or, or from when parents don't recover? Well, I think it's a great question because when I say modeling, I think sometimes when people think about modeling, they think about parents or themselves modeling. They think about being perfect. They think about being flawless. And, you know, that's not how we model effectively. I think we model effectively when we are living, breathing, flawed, imperfect human beings who make errors and recover from them. And the recovery is super important, you know. If we're self-aware enough to say, uh, I lost it, or I made a mistake, or I screwed up, and here's why, and I'm sorry, and I want to move on, um, that can be a very powerful experience for kids, um, you know, particularly if we yeah, don't... What, what could be a greater lesson? Yeah, I mean, a terrific lesson for kids. You know, I think if we're making the same mistake over and over again and we're not changing, that becomes demoralizing and dis discouraging for kids. But if we really show that we are aware of our flaws and are dealing with them and we're aware of our errors and we're managing them... That's a, a wonderful lesson. So, so this is kind of a counterforce to what for so many of us is, is a natural inclination to kind of cover up and be ashamed and not really uh, acknowledge an error. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, you know, when kids are very young, there's a level of discourse, of conversation we really can't have, <clears throat> we really can't have with them about our flaws or errors. They're not sort of old enough to understand our flaws or errors. But I think we typically dramatically underestimate our ca kids' capacity to really understand our mistakes and, and flaws and to appreciate that we have mistakes and flaws. You know, I'll give you an example. I sometimes can be too critical of people. And so I will tell my kids, you know, sometimes I'm too critical of people. And I think in saying that, I'm both acknowledging, I'm saying something important, both that don't always trust my views of people, or you should view them sometimes critically or reflect on them because they're not always right. But I'm also saying to them, you know, it's okay to be flawed. And I'm not holding up this st impossible standard for them. describe the atmosphere in which youth are under intense pressure to achieve at school, how that pressure is exerted on kids, uh, and how they're affected by it? So there's research, and this is primarily Sunaya Luthar's research at Columbia, about the rates of different kinds of problems among affluent kids, behavior problems, delinquency, substance abuse. 
um, and depression, anxiety. And the disconcerting news here is that affluent kids look a lot like low-income kids in terms of these risks, in terms of these measures. That uh, it's actually middle-class, working-class kids who are doing significantly better than low-income kids and affluent kids. That's surprising somehow. It, it's surprising. And, you know, and despite all the obvious stresses that low-income kids are under, and the causes are different, I think, in these different communities, and the consequences are different, um, but it's really concerning. Rates of depression among affluent girls look like they're about twice as high as they are in the general population. And Sunaya Luthar research is also suggesting that achievement pressure is a big part of this. And, and what exactly is achievement pressure? And when I talk to guidance counselors and parents, some parents and certainly teachers, in schools and independent schools and private schools and suburban schools with high numbers of affluent kids, they talk about this too. Um, it's an extraordinary amount of pressure to get into prestigious colleges. Um, it's high status achievement is really what I'm talking about. Um, to be a doctor or a lawyer or a corporate leader, um, to achieve at some very high level, to work very hard um, all the time, you know, I was, at a, I was talking to a group of, of high school teachers from private schools a few months ago, and one of these teachers said, you know, I just feel like we've got to blow these schools up and start over again. We're just so organized around our kids achieving. That has become so the sole focus um, of school. S-O-L-E. <laughs> S-O-L-E, yeah, exactly. And we're not very concerned with S-O-U-L, you know? We're not really concerned with the soul and, um, and with many aspects of, of character. And, um, and it's very concerning. And, you know, I think there are some parents who are doing outright unethical things. I mean, that's, they're not a large group, but they're a small, significant fraction of parents. And I'm really talking about, you know, parents who are threatening to sue guidance counselors, who don't write their kids good college recommendations, Parents who are getting their kids falsely diagnosed as having ADD, so they'll have more time on the SAT. Parents who are getting their kids SAT tutors beginning in the seventh grade or the sixth grade. Um, you know, just sort of excessive or irresponsible or even unethical kinds of things. What's happening to the kids, to their inner lives as a consequence? What I worry about is kids... Um, and kids we talk to would say this, you know, in private schools, that they're very, they become very competitive with other kids. It becomes sort of a dog-eat-dog world in high school. They don't, you know, some kids would say they don't want to help out other kids. It's hard to really care about other kids when you're in these very competitive environments. So that was one kind of damage that I worried about. I also worried about kids just achieving to achieve. And some kids, you know, are clearly achieving. They don't know why they're achieving. They're just achieving because they've been told to achieve. And I remember talking to the head of the Bureau of Study Council at Harvard, you know, several years ago, and he said, you know, something like 30 to 35% of Harvard kids are on medication for anxiety or depression at some point in their Harvard career. And, you know, he was saying there are a lot of causes to this, but one of them is this intense achievement pressure and kids just achieving to achieve, kids achieving but not having any passion. This unhealthy pressure is what Richard Weisbord calls the achievement craze. As he writes in his book, The Parents We Mean to Be, this focus can set children up for misery and threaten the development of exactly those qualities of the self 
that are the basis of appreciation, integrity, and caring. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliard. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck and Bruce Albert. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you. This segment with Richard Weisbord on nurturing moral development of children is Humankind Program number 157. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org.